Hello, and welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Here we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether you find the message to be uplifting or challenging, comforting or even unsettling, we hope it'll help you grow in faith and your relationship with God. Thank you for listening. To God be the glory. Good morning. The first reading is from Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Here ends the reading. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what also had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, For we all preach the same message that you have already believed. 
Here ends the reading. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out there where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in with the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me, I am such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So there's a a lot of bits of Scripture that we don't end up reading in church uh, on a Sunday either because it's not in the lectionary. Uh, I'm thinking of Song of Songs, and I'm thinking of uh, a lot of Leviticus, things that we don't read on Sunday. Don't worry, I'm not going to read you some Leviticus. Um, Though it is fascinating. Anyway, um, it's interesting where the lectionary writers break things off and then where we make decisions once the lectionary writers have, have broken off. And I want to be clear that I'm not like accusing anyone of anything horrible. Uh, the lectionary uh, will often give you a parenthetical bit of, uh, of verses, and most churches will just cut off the parenthetical bit for time, right? We got, we got the point. It's fine. Our Isaiah passage today, <laughs> it's fascinating. So we ended with, here I am, send me. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. What is he being sent to? I will tell you. And God said, go and say this to the people. Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. There's a reason we don't read this. And then I said, Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Right, so, I'm going to preach about that. A few years ago, (coughs) a friend of mine brought a conference into town that was called the Epic Fail Pastors Conference, which is a great name. They didn't invite inspirational speakers whose churches had grown from 20 to 20,000 or whose personal stories facing overwhelming odds led to triumph with the help of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you can too. No. They invited participants to speak together about their failures. They were invited to bring their fear, their botched expectations, their low numbers. They brought their cardboard cutouts, smiley success stories, and acknowledged them for what they were protection for their fear of shame and failure. 
conference was not meant to wallow in misery, exactly, but it was to sit with one another to affirm the difficulty of ministry and, and really all of our lives, because every one of us struggles with making connections, to be understood, to make headway in those things that we care about, right? It doesn't matter if the way we failed is big or small, it hurts. Failure is a constant, solidified by our inevitable death. It's an uplifting sermon this morning. So these folks talked at this conference about failure as a spiritual discipline. It sounded amazing. And I failed to go, because of course. These kinds of things, small things like missing a conference just as much as big things like failing to dismantle racism in America, they make us feel bad. We feel shameful, less than everyone else. I don't know what stuff you bring with you today, but the good news is, of course you don't know what you're doing. That is good news. <laughs> None of us know what we're doing. Not really. It's all an experiment. We're not very good at it a lot of the time. That failure is not the end. Or at least, failure is the end of something, but it's not the, fail the end of everything. It's part of a process. Kids are bad at everything at first. Tying their shoes, feeding themselves, even holding up their own heads when they're born. Anybody remember tummy time? Of course they are. They've never done it before. It's hard as hell. Excuse me, heck. It's a sermon about failure. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, they fuss and cry, and when we encourage them to keep experimenting with their muscles and their brains, they get it. My daughter, I don't know if any of you remember this, uh, she was tiny enough, you might have. My daughter, when she was tiny, had this odd, like, tripod, half-crawl, half-walk thing going on when she was little. It was unconventional, but it worked, because she kept at it. We adults are bad at everything as well, because we've got these big brains putting a value judgment on it. When we fail, we call ourselves stupid, or whatever. We call each other those same things. Honestly, it seems to me, adults are just toddlers with a bigger vocabulary. <laughs> Our culture makes us believe that failure is the worst possible scenario. But when God calls Isaiah, it is directly to failure. Or at least that's what it seems like. We read his call story, that time that God invited him to be a prophet, and you probably remember that bit. You've heard that part before, right? Got the divine presence in the temple, and the robe, the hem of God's robe fills the temple, and there's the hot coal and the seraphim, and it's, it's really fantastic, kind of terrifying and beautiful at the same time. And then after he gets purified, you get the bit that I read, this commission. Go tell people not to listen. Make sure that they will not see or hear so they won't understand when God speaks to them. What? Really? I mean, we could argue all day about God's ways being mysterious, if you like, and that's fine. But I think there's something else going on here. I think this is a passage about how failure is a gift. We humans spend a lot of energy on this binary between um, success and failure, as though that is the only thing. 
as though they are totally separate from each other. It's, it's not that those concepts don't exist, but the binary between them, having to pick one or the other, that doesn't exist. It's like that old saw about not uh, seeing in black and white, right? We think when we've succeeded at all, we can't possibly have failed. And we think when we've failed, there's no way we could ever be successful. That's not true. And that is not what's going on in Isaiah. Isaiah, like a lot of places in prophetic literature, he is working on describing something and not proscribing something. So let me break that down for you. There's a thing here that you can't see. <laughs> it's tall and purple. That's describing. Proscribing is, there's a thing here, it should be tall and purple. Right? The prophets are describing their experience of the world. Sometimes they're proscribing. <laughs> Mostly they're describing. It's not that God wants people to be deaf to the word of life. It's that Isaiah's experience in sharing that word is that he's met with the people's indifference and their inability to hear him. If he's telling the people that God wants them to welcome the stranger into their midst, which God does, and the people understand that the stranger is dangerous or lazy or stealing their jobs, it's an uphill battle to get them to listen, much less to change their behavior. And you think I'm being political? This is an ancient story. An ancient story. They are so full of shame and self-righteousness that they can't hear the truth for the fog of it. And it's the same for us. This is the result of God speaking to Isaiah. Speak truth, show love. Fail. But it's not failure, or at least the way we always think of it. Let me tell you a story that might help clarify this. A few years ago, one of our students at the Edge House left, and not like graduation left. The Edge House, if you're not aware, is the campus ministry that this congregation restarted 10 years ago. It's a place like the inn on the road to Jericho, a place of storytelling, of healing, and of transience. And sometimes we fail at that healing. The student who left had a transformative summer as a camp counselor. Anybody who's ever done that knows what that can feel like. And you also know, after those right place, right time moments, going back to your real world can be really painful. It can feel like a death. So everyday life back home was hard. Plus, he had changed his major really significantly at the beginning of the summer, which was good. But also he felt the burden of more time and more money in school, what his parents were expecting of him, and both of his brothers had started at the same university that fall, which is great, family's lovely, but he created this life for himself. What were they going to bring with them from home that he wanted to leave behind? And then one of his good friends and he ended up in an argument that we worked on trying to work through. but. He realized the pain that he caused her, and he said, I need a break. So he left. Not school. Us. Me. This break was a new thing for our community, and it was like an open wound. It was open-ended as well. We didn't know when he was going to come back or even if he would. We agreed to leave him space to work out his stuff and to reconnect with him at the end of the semester. It's very mature. Sounds all well and good, right? 
wrong. My immediate visceral, so powerful, it must be the truth feeling was that his leaving was a sign that everything I had done since I'd started six years before was wrong. Everything. Obviously, right? Of course. This one beloved student needing to work on his stuff away from us means that we have failed from the get-go. Lies. My spiritual director says that this is the devil at work, not the external, like, red dude with the pitchfork situation, but this little insidious voice that tells us that everything we do is garbage. You have that voice sometimes? His leaving was precisely what we needed as a community, not because he was dreadful, he's great, but because we needed to learn how to let someone leave and how to trust them to do their own work. This is what we do as parents as well. We needed to identify and separate our own emotional stuff from his, and as painful as it was, it was good practice. He came back to us the next semester, more grounded, more aware of himself, a huge positive influence on other people's lives. Failure. Not failure. Think about it this way. In the scientific community, not knowing something is what makes you a good scientist. It means that you're able to ask questions about what you don't know. So at the Edge House, we read an article fairly regularly called The Importance of Stupidity in Scientific Research. It's a really great article, very short, recommend it to you. It's not an anti-science screed, but the experience of one scientist who, when he was stumped about something he was working on and went to go talk to his mentors, discovered that they didn't have the answers. And he realized, of course they don't have the answers. That's the point of research. That's what I'm doing in doing these experiments. He writes, the crucial lesson was that the scope of things I didn't know wasn't merely vast, it was, for all practical purposes, infinite. That realization, instead of being discouraging, was liberating. If our ignorance is infinite, the only possible course of action is to muddle through the best we can. So as we are doing that, as we are muddling here, out there, as we're in this process, it's not a competition, which is what success and failure gives us to believe. Something new is happening in every instant, and failure is a constant so not knowing the answers already is scary, for sure, but consider this, not already having to know something makes it so much easier to ask for help, makes it so much easier to experiment. The possibilities are unlimited. In a competition model, there are too many restrictions on the possibilities. A conversation becomes something you can win. A relationship becomes something you can win. Love and freedom and sobriety and all these things become something you can win. In a process model, we are always growing and changing, rather racing for that, instead of racing for that one perfect moment. We are ready to see something new. So one way to do that is to ask someone to talk to you about your failure. That's really terrifying. I know. Take a cue from those pastors at the conference. Don't talk to yourself because your brain will tell you that you're garbage. Talk to someone else. 
and say, what is a different way for me to look at this failure? What's different now that this didn't work? What are the possibilities? And in our context, where is God in this moment? One of my favorite early church theologians, Tertullian, anybody big fan? Sorry. Um, <laughs> he's another one of those people I want to argue with in the afterlife. Anyway, he wrote, Credo quiat absurdum. I believe because it is absurd. This ridiculously brilliant dude. I believe because it is absurd. That failure is a gift is completely absurd. And I believe it. So friends, keep listening, but do not comprehend, because being successful is not the goal. Keep looking, but do not understand, because not understanding, being bad at something, failure, is an invitation to dig deeper, to see beyond ourselves, to open ourselves up to the vast, constant love of God that sustains the universe in every moment. May it be so. Thanks again for listening to this week's message from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Kenwood. Please browse our website for other opportunities to grow in faith or serve the Lord. If you are able to worship with us at any time, we would be most honored by your presence.